All right, so a little bit of a recap, starting on page 40, middle of page 40. We, last week, um, what's going on here? There we go. Uh, last week, we looked at this, the differences between uh, the first three and the second three actions that are taken by the Holy Spirit in our lives when we are saved. And so those first three that are listed there are God working alone or monergistically. That was the big word I gave you last week was monergistic. Uh, the second three are dependent on man's cooperation or man's obedience when it comes to the Holy Spirit's filling, bearing fruit for the Spirit, and exercising the spiritual gifts that he gives. And that's really what it should say because his giving of gifts is something that he does alone, but exercising those gifts requires our cooperation, of course. And so those are the differences in those first uh, three compared to the second three, and those are the ones that we're going through. Last week, we covered the first one in the blue, how the Holy Spirit baptizes us at our conversion. We are baptized by Him when we believe and we are converted. And so this week, we may end up making it through the other five, but that would be going really fast. So we'll see how far we get, and uh, we'll start with sealing. But first, let me summarize what uh, we learned about being baptized by the Spirit. And I'm going to just kind of drag it out for a moment so those who weren't here last week can finish writing down what they want to write down from this PowerPoint. Let's see, what can I say? You got your Christmas tree up? Okay, all right. All right, <clears throat> long enough. Baptism with the Spirit is uh, something that happens again at our conversion, and the evidence of this baptism is a life that is given to God in obedience to the authority of His Word, as opposed to a one-time feeling. New living is the result of having been baptized in the Spirit. So this is at the top of page 41. There's a blank up there that the evidence of the baptism with the Spirit is a life that is given to God in obedience. You don't obey God in order to get baptized with the Spirit, but if you have been baptized with the Spirit, that will reveal itself in your obedience. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but what it means is that there's new life at work in the believer, meaning there's a, a, a gradual increasing hatred for sin and a gradual increasing love for God, and that reveals itself in the way that we live. We talked about this last week. Um, whether or not people will always feel the baptism with the Spirit? And uh, the answer to that is no. There are times when people have true spiritual experiences that include their feelings, but that is not a requirement at all in Scripture. Uh, scripture never says, if you are truly baptized with the Spirit, you will feel such and such. Uh, there's no burning in the bosom or whatever guaranteed to all believers in Jesus, okay? Um, so even though that may happen, it's not a prerequisite. So thoughts or questions on baptism before we move on to sealing. Okay. Let's talk about what it means to be sealed with the Spirit. Now, new contents. They're at the top of 41. Being sealed with the Spirit of God. God seals the believer at the very moment of belief, and the Spirit is given to him or to her as the first installment of the inheritance. God has set an airtight, locked seal on the Christian's soul. There's an inheritance that's laid up for us. We 
have inherited God, and we will enjoy him forever and ever. Uh, but there's, of course, heaven for those who pass away now. There's the uh, uh, second coming of Jesus. There's the millennium. There's the new heaven and new earth. There's a lot that we will inherit as believers. Well, the first installment of our inheritance is that God has given us himself. This is how Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit and his particular sealing function in your life, that he's given to you as a down payment of what is to come, a guarantee of better things. And we'll look together now at 2 Corinthians and Ephesians to see how this is described in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 21. Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, so toward the bottom of that chapter. Would someone read for us those two verses? Rex, thank you. <laughs> it's right after 20 still. All right. That's the NIV you got there, right, Rex? Okay, so it says in verse 22 that he has set his seal on us, and that's, of course, directly tied to the giving us his spirit as a guarantee, as a pledge, as a down payment of what is to come. And so really important theme in Christian theology, in New Testament theology, in Paul's theology, we have this seal, this guarantee of what is to come, because we have the Spirit. Now, this is, uh, it, I don't know, it can be maybe a little conflicting for us because it's like, well, wait a second, I didn't, I didn't feel anything whenever I got saved. Um, how am I supposed to really trust that I have the Spirit? If this is such a big deal and I haven't felt anything, how can I have this assurance? Well, um, having feelings about, I don't know, some supernatural experience that really doesn't give us any more certainty than not having feelings. How trustworthy are your feelings? And how many people out there in the world have had feelings about false things? And they say, I have, I've had this feeling. I know for sure that Muhammad was a prophet of God. Or that Jesus did not rise from the dead. There are some religious people out there who say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And we say, okay, you had that feeling, but I, that your feeling doesn't mean anything. So um, you never want to search out feelings as the basis for your faith. They can be something that God uses in your life for sure, but it's never going to be the reason why you believe what you believe. It's never to be the reason why you have certainty or assurance is because you had heartburn that felt good or something. I don't know. Okay, that's, that's not uh, what Paul wants us to get from what he wrote here. But instead, we are to understand whether we felt something drastically or not, that if we have a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, if we're believers in the gospel, the truth is we also have the Spirit of God living in us. Go. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you should embrace feelings as um, a wonderful thing. 
but never as the foundation of your beliefs. So you, you should never say to a person, I know God loves me because I feel his love. You know God loves you because he has told you he does in his word. Now, if you want to tack on to that, and I had this experience, or I felt this, or I do feel this, whatever, that's fine. But that's more of like an appendix. The main substance is God has told me this. Our foundation is what he has said. Good. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. Ephesians 1. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, just two verses, 13 and 14. Let's see how Paul describes this sealing stuff there. It's the same author writing to a different church, but still believers in Jesus. Who would read for us verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1? Jen, thank you. All right. Now, it is kind of interesting, just the fact that Paul is communicating this to them and telling them this is what happened somewhat indicates that they probably didn't have a crazy supernatural experience. He would have said something like, as you know, you know, you had this experience, whatever. But he's instructing, communicating to them what has taken place, whether or not they were aware of it at the time. This is something that happened and has an ongoing effect, that after listening to the message of truth and believing, they were sealed in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. And you see in verse 14, he brings back that same uh, terminology, a down payment, a pledge, a guarantee. So let's look at the order here. The order is important to remember. This is something we've gone over before. But the first thing is that someone hears. And what are they hearing in this process as it starts in verse 13? What message? Good. Good, good. Hearing the gospel. So someone hears the gospel. Now, if step three is um, being sealed by the Spirit, what do you see here as in between those two things? What, what takes somebody from a hearer to someone who is sealed? Good. Believes. We'll say believes in Jesus. How about that? Okay. So that's, that's the step-by-step the -step process as laid out in those verses. Someone hears the gospel, believes in Jesus, and then is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Very, very important uh, that you get that correct. So someone cannot be sealed by the Holy Spirit without believing in the true Jesus. And no one can believe in the true Jesus without hearing the gospel, the biblical gospel. There are, of course, some people that we'll interact with, particularly Latter-day Saints, who will say that we all have the light of Christ or that we're all God's children. You know, we've already talked about adoption stuff. And they're disregarding Paul's whole theology as he lays it out in his letters. We're all lost and dead in sin. We need to hear the gospel. We need to believe in Jesus. And in that way, we're made right with God forever. Joe. Like accepting Jesus? Well, um, two things. One, if you wanted to, you could kind of put it right here in step two, believing in Jesus. But the other thing is to point out is that the Bible never uses the language except Jesus. The Bible, no one ever tells anybody except Jesus into your heart, even though it's a very familiar phrase for Christians today. The Bible doesn't use that language. It uses the, the language of receive, receive Jesus, 
or uh, receive the gospel, but, but far and away, the number one command is, or activity is believe the gospel. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Okay, well, let's keep going, talking about what it means to be sealed. Still in Ephesians, over to chapter 4, verse 30. This one is one of my favorite verses because it really gives us the, uh, the time frame on how this sealing works. Ephesians 4, verse 30, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, when do you get unsealed? Grieve? Sure. Hold on just a second. Yeah. Hold on. I can't answer that and write this at the same time. I'll start writing weird things on the board. I'll, have, I'll make my blooper for today. Um, <clears throat> yeah, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God means to resist Him, so we are, or, or to uh, disobey Him. So we are called to uh, submit to God, obviously. The Holy Spirit is God. There's a submission relationship we have with Him. We are called to yield to the Holy Spirit. We are called to be led by the Holy Spirit. These are New Testament phrases that we get as commands for Christians. So to grieve the Holy Spirit would be to uh, disobey the Word of God. It would be to, um, let me go back. There we go. These bottom three, they require man's cooperation it would be to not cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he's seeking to bring about fruit in your life, for example. If the fruit of the Spirit will look at love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, when you choose to be unloving, you're resisting or grieving the Holy Spirit. And because he's a person, he has emotion. And he can be grieved. Just as Jesus wept, the Holy Spirit, too, can be grieved. Because he's not a, a mystical force, he's not an it, He's a he. So uh, really important to grasp that aspect of it too. Okay? All right. So Ephesians 4.30, the timing of the sealing. <clears throat> In a person's generation, that person is granted God and will never, ever lose him. When you got saved, when you were converted, you were given God, and you won't lose God. God the Spirit comes, has come to you if you're a believer. And he set his seal on you. And that's never going to be broken. It, it just won't be broken. You are his. He, he owns you and has marked his ownership. So we can conclude that since we are unable to seal ourselves, we're also unable to unseal ourselves. God has come and set his seal, and no purpose of his can be thwarted. You are his, and you are sealed until the day of redemption. All of those whom God has redeemed will be there on the day of redemption. They're not going to, he's not going to lose any. Uh, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, I, I will lose none of them. And it's through this process of the Holy Spirit setting his seal on believers. Woo! Okay, that makes me feel more comfortable. <clears throat> Thoughts, questions on sealing? Okay. Um, Charles Ryrie puts it this way. Only two people can legitimately break the seal of a piece of mail, the recipient or the sender, if it is delivered back to them. In, this, in, the, in the case of believers, God is the sender and God is the recipient. 
And God is the one who does the sealing. So only God can break the seal, and he has promised to do so, not to do so, until the day of redemption. So only God can legitimately break the seal. Only God has the authority to break the seal. And uh, he won't do so until the day of redemption, until he uh, makes us new, and we are in his presence, the fullness of his presence, totally redeemed. Exciting day that will be. We should, like, make songs about that. What a day, glorious day that will be. Well, I'm going to move on now to indwelling, unless there's anything else on sealing here. Okay. All right. <clears throat> indwelling. Every person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit is indwelt by Him. The Holy Spirit, who is the infinite Creator humbles himself to indwell finite creatures so that he may exalt Christ in the lives of the redeemed. So you've got that blank there, middle of 41. The infinite creator humbles himself to indwell finite creatures. How mysteriously wonderful is that? Now, can I write out on the whiteboard scientifically how that works? No, I cannot. I cannot give you the math or anything like that to explain exactly how this works. Just can't do it. But um, I can give you passages of Scripture that indicate that this is the case, that the Holy Spirit, who is eternal, this is in Hebrews 9. We looked at this back in pneumatology. The Holy Spirit, who is eternal, indwells us. And we ain't eternal, are we? No, we are not. We are not eternal at all. If uh, you look back, if you have your notes and you look back to starting on page 24, this is where we uh, described the nature of the Holy Spirit. From pages 24 to 28, we talked about this. And uh, we see in the middle of page 24, Hebrews 9.14, the Holy Spirit is eternal. He has the power of God, Luke chapter 1. He's omnipresent, Psalm 139. He's omniscient, 1 Corinthians 2. We looked at all these attributes of the Holy Spirit. He is God, and yet He indwells you, Christian. How does that make you feel? Since we're talking about feelings today. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. But this is also like the Christian life, that we are uh, jars of clay and we're being renewed day by day from the inside, that God is working in us, producing amazing hope of glory. It's by his power that we can be set apart for him in a twisted, messed up world. Because we have the very power of God living in us. It says in Romans chapter 8, the same power that gave life to Christ to rise him from the dead dwells in your mortal bodies. Whoa. Okay, pretty big deal. So let's look at a couple passages on that. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. And in this passage, we are not going to see the individual indwelling, but we still see a kind of indwelling. So let's look at uh, 16 and 17, actually. Would someone read those two verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17? Mike, thank you.
All right, so these yous that are being used here are plural. It's like saying you all, or if Yvonne was here, y'all. So verse 16, do you not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? That's what he's saying. Um, here, I mean, and that doesn't necessarily mean he's talking about uh, the church as opposed to individuals, the collective church as opposed to individual members. But I do think that's what he's saying because of the context of 1 Corinthians 3 and even what verse 17 says, that if any man seeks to destroy, if anyone tries to tear down God's church, he himself will be destroyed because the church is holy. I think that's the context of 1 Corinthians 3, that the temple illustration is being used to leave no doubt that as a church, the Holy Spirit is in the assembly, the assembly of Christians. This is one of the reasons why I really don't like it when people uh, pray, Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. I don't like that. Okay? I, uh, one of my most popular articles I've written was uh, titled, Stop Inviting the Holy Spirit to Your Church. Uh, because there was a popular song at the time, Spirit come, Spirit come, Spirit come, like chanted over and over again. And then you get, and of course in their mind, because these were charismatic people, you start having this experience and all these feelings. And I've already talked to you about that today. Well, um, as a church, we don't need to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, like already? Right? So when we're asking the Spirit to come, I mean, I think really what people are asking for is uh, a lot of times some sort of supernatural experience. And I don't think we need to ask God for that. I think we just need to live for God with what he's given us. And if he wants to give us a supernatural experience, he'll do so. That's my opinion on that. Well, how did I get there? 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that the Holy Spirit is already in the assembly of Christians because we are the temple of God collectively as the church. But if we go to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, we'll see that it's not only collectively, but it is true, even individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So not just in a church setting where we're all gathered together, but even in your own personal prayer life, you don't need to ask the Holy Spirit to come because he's already dwelling in you. I'll read this for us, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All right. So here, I don't think there's any doubt he's talking about individuals because he's talking about the sexual immorality, the, the sinful actions that people can commit with their human bodies. So when he says body here, that's what he's talking about. In verse 19, he says, your body, Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So here we're talking about personal indwelling by God. And what's so amazing about this is it's not like, you know, say there are, we'll use a round number just to make it easy. Say there are one billion Christians in the world. 
It's not like you have one billionth of the Holy Spirit living in you. All one billion Christians have 100% of the Holy Spirit living in them. Because he's omnipresent, isn't he? In that Psalm 139, David asks, Where can I go from your spirit? If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I go up into the clouds, you're there. If I go to the remotest parts of the sea, you are there. So God's like able to do that kind of stuff. Pretty amazing. And we all, as Christians, have the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, not a part of Him. Well, let's uh, look at the application that Paul makes to this in Romans chapter 8, where he is talking about the reality of the Spirit and how that affects our lives. Just because He's uh, indwelling us doesn't mean that we're actually taking hold of that power that He gives. And so here Paul is encouraging us to submit to the Spirit who dwells within. A little bit of a longer passage, Romans chapter 8. Who would read verses 5 through 11? Romans 8, 5 through 11. Who's got that for us? Going once, going twice. Evelyn, thanks so much. It's in the New Testament, Evelyn. <laughs> I'm just joking with Evelyn. <clears throat> 5 through 11. All right, verse 11 is that one I was just referencing a moment ago. That's one, like, worth memorizing, Romans 8, 11. Really important verse. The Spirit wars against the flesh, so you can deduce that there's a battle happening. You are still in the flesh as far as, like, you're physically limited, you haven't been resurrected and glorified yet. You are in this body of death, Paul calls it just a few verses before this. However... The spirit of life is within you. The spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is in you. So there's like a battle going on constantly. And I'm pretty sure you're aware of this, right? There's a battle between God in you and your own fleshly desires. Well, we have the power to win each battle by the Holy Spirit. The spirit empowers the Christian to win the battle against the flesh by granting us spiritual power to overcome sin. That's really good news. It's not just good news when we first hear the gospel. It's good news as we grow in understanding God's word and understanding exactly what he's given us to live this life for him. Okay? Other thoughts on indwelling? All right. Well, um, we have now covered the first three items of what happens when we're born again. These things happen at the moment of conversion. You are baptized, you are sealed, and the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you. Well, now we're transitioning into like the born-again life, the life that you live day by day, and this requires your involvement. It requires your obedience. It requires your cooperation with God as we grow in Christ-likeness. So let's uh, first talk about filling. And this uh, is a very important uh, distinction to make between indwelling and filling. Perhaps you've had in your mind that they're the same, but they are not. They sound the same, we use them the same in our language, but they're not. Filling is not the same as indwelling, it's plerao versus okeo. 
The latter means to take up residence. The former means to make complete. So, okeo, or okeo, I don't know. I don't have the Greek up there, just the English. But it comes from the word oikos. That is a brand of yogurt, isn't it? You guys have seen oikos? Did you guys know it's a Greek word? And it means house. That's what it means. So, um, that verb form up there, oikeo or okeo, um, that word means to indwell. The thing we were just looking at. It means to indwell. To live in someone's house. To take up residence in a house. This other word, plerao, it doesn't mean to take up residence. It means to complete something. To make something complete. Right? So filling is different than indwelling. Being filled with the Spirit is a key part of sanctification. In order to grow, the believer must rely completely on the Spirit's work. Are you always relying completely on the Spirit's work in you, or are you sometimes like trying to be self-sufficient? Okay, those times when you are like, I'm amazing self-sufficient woman or man, those times you are not being filled with the Spirit. Those times you are probably grieving the Spirit, aren't you? So be filled with the Spirit is an encouragement to totally rely on the Spirit's work that He would make you complete. Let's consider uh, the main passage that we have on this in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Yes, ma'am. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. How would, you, how would you finish this? I can do it because... Mm, well, yeah, you're probably grieving the Spirit. You're pretty self-sufficient there, aren't you? If you finish the sentence, I can do it because all things are possible with God, or I can do it because um, I can do all things by Him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13, or I can do it because God has called me to it and He's enabling me to do it by His grace. In those instances, you're not being self-sufficient. Yeah, good. It's a good paradigm shift, isn't it? Yeah. All right, Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Who can read that for us, those four verses? Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Thank you, Mandy. All right, so many cool things to see in that passage, but let's laser focus on verse 18. Verse 18 is where we get this phrase to be filled with the Spirit. What is the Spirit's filling with, what is the Spirit's filling contrasted with here in verse 18? Yeah, now why do you think that is? Okay, I think, yeah, control is definitely the key word. In one instance, you're giving yourself over to some substance to control you. And the other, you're giving yourself over to a person who is God, the Holy Spirit, to control you. See the distinction there? Who's going to rule in your heart? Do not get drunk with wine, but instead be controlled by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, be made complete with the Spirit of God. 
Being filled with the Spirit brings about unity, thankfulness, and submission. As you read through the rest of the passage down through verse 21, that, these are the results of being filled with the Spirit, and it's very, very beautiful. But is it possible for Christians to act contrary to that? Yes. Is it possible for a Christian to get drunk? Yeah. That's why Paul's writing, don't do it, right? Don't do it, because you're offering up your control, something you should not. But instead, control of your life should be constantly given over to God. Now, another really interesting reality here with, um, as we think about the difference between indwelling and filling, you can add this to your notes, even though I don't have a slide for it. Indwelling is stated as a reality. It's just stated as a fact. You are indwelt by the Spirit. Just, it's a, what kind of sentence is that? De- declarative sentence. He's declaring that's just what it is. However, be filled with the Spirit is a command. So the reality of indwelling is just a fact. But to be filled with the Spirit, you have to be involved because what Paul is doing in verse 18 is commanding Christians, be filled with the Spirit. That's like a thing that you are supposed to do. And if you don't do it, you won't be. But if you do it, you will be. So very, uh, very important distinction between indwelling and filling, and we want to make sure that we understand the difference. So how would you fulfill this command to be filled with the Spirit? How does that happen, do you think? We've talked all around it, but yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so... Um, Garbage in, garbage out kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, Making sure that we are feasting on the Word of God, that we get our daily bread from Scripture, and that we have as our sustenance the very words of God, and that we are putting off those things which would distract us. Uh, That's Colossians chapter 3, put on the new man, put off the old man. Good. What else? Fellowshipping, very good. The uh, charcoal illustration, how hot does a, a charcoal briquette or lump or whatever, how hot does it stay on its own compared to being with the rest, right? Uh, that's a very good illustration because God created us for community. God created us for fellowship, togetherness. He didn't create anybody to go be a hermit as much as some of us want to be. He didn't create us to go live on our own, away from everybody, and then die. God has more for us than that. Um, what about prayer? Where does prayer fit in here? Yeah. Um, are you going to be filled with the Spirit if you have no prayer life? Yeah. Right. Um, if you flip over to the next chapter of Ephesians 6... Ephesians 6, 18, Christians are commanded here to pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. You will be filled with the Spirit if you are seeking to pray at all times in the Spirit. Knowing that He's in you and He's urging you on, He's pushing you 
in this life. He's leading you, guiding, directing you through this life. You would do well to like talk to God about what's going on in your life because God dwells in you. And so it's really, uh, we've listed those three, three things that I think are so key. I've uh, told people before, it's like when you go get a physical or just a regular doctor checkup or whatever, so often the doctors want to know uh, what's your diet like, what your exercise is like, and what's your water intake, right? Those are like the basic things. If you have those three things going on, generally, you'll be doing okay. If you don't have those things going on, if you've got bad diet, no exercise, and you're not drinking water, you're, instead of uh, being up and to the right, you're going to be down and to the right with your health. Well, instead of diet, water, exercise, I talk about, with, with counseling people, word of God, prayer, and fellowship. I think those three are the essential ones. Are you reading the word of God? Are you praying to the God of the word? Are you around other believers, getting accountability, having iron sharpen iron? If you don't have those three things, generally, your Christian life's not going to be very successful. You're not going to have much victory. You're not going to feel like you're serving God. Okay? It's just pretty basic. But just like with our physical diet, our spiritual diet, you think of those things, and it's like, oh, but that's boring, you know, oh, that's no good. I want to go eat junk food. I want to sit at home and do nothing. I, water just tastes bad or whatever. You know, people have all things against water. You know, we have all these excuses, just like in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm. But this is the way God has designed your body. This is the way God has designed your soul. You're not going to succeed and be strengthened without those three things. Yes, ma'am, with that look on your face. <laughs> I haven't said your name, have I? <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, well, I trust that the Spirit's making application to each heart. Okay, so that's what filling is all about. Any uh, thoughts, questions on being filled? Let me give you a quote then from MacArthur and Mayhew. Humans have two choices. Be filled by the flesh in unbelief or be filled by the Holy Spirit in salvation and sanctification. Being filled authenticates one's genuine salvation by allowing God's will to prevail in obedience to Scripture's teaching and the Holy Spirit's direction. Second sentence again. Being filled authenticates one's genuine salvation by allowing God's will to prevail in obedience to Scripture's teaching and the Holy Spirit's direction. You will be more and more assured of not only your salvation, but the truth of God's Word, the more and more that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Those two things play off of each other. They feed into one another. All right, let's talk about bearing fruit, and uh, this is probably where we're going to end today. The new nature that God creates in us at conversion is manifested in a total change of disposition. Though no human Christian will, I don't know why I said human Christian, as opposed to a feline Christian or something like that. Though no Christian, <clears throat> that's so weird, why did I say that, uh, will be perfect, there will be indicators of conversion. Where the Spirit goes, He leaves evidence of His presence. That's what you have at the top of 42. Where the Spirit goes, He leaves evidence of His presence. Galatians 5 is where we'll go to uh, check out the fruit of the Spirit. And we're actually going to start at verse 16, like it says in your notes, where 
Paul directly contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. So I'll read for us Galatians 5, 16 to 24. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Huh. I thought God just wants me to be happy that I can do what I want. Wow. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." Well, let's go back to the start of that passage, verses 16 to uh, 18. What are the commands given to Christians there? Or you could even say the, the big overall command. Yeah, to walk by the Spirit. So even though He indwells us, even though He uh, has caused us to be born again, even though He's baptized us, even though um, He has sealed us, we are still commanded to walk in Him. That part doesn't happen automatically. That part doesn't happen at salvation as a one-time event. That is like your ongoing task as a Christian, to walk in Him or by Him. That's the goal of the Christian, because He is in opposition to the flesh. So as long as you are being led by the Spirit, the flesh is being mortified. The flesh is being put down. The flesh is being killed. So you can look at a list like this, the deeds of the flesh, verses 19 to 21. You can look at that list and say, okay, here are all the things I need to avoid. And you're just trying to sidestep them in life. But you know what Paul's actually encouraging us to do and what's way easier, because it's God's way, is just commit yourself to following the Spirit, and naturally you won't do those things on that list. Because if you're walking by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So instead of fixating on all the things that you shouldn't do, fixate on all the things that God has called you to do. Fix out on, fixate, out on, fixate on those things which are good. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, etc., etc., think on these things. And when you do that, you won't be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. You won't be sinning. So let's remember that the old man is dead. The old man has been crucified with Christ, that body of sin. So even though we still sin, even though we're still in this body of death to a degree, the old man is dead. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than whatever remains. So just like in Titus 3, where we learned about regeneration, the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
There are marks listed describing the former self, and this passage indicates the new marks that the current self currently possesses. The new person, the new creation, the one who's been born again, you currently possess, look at verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are yours. You're not working your way to get those. They're yours. And that is another one of those big paradigm shifts when it comes to Christian living. And this comes up a lot in counseling situations where our recommendation isn't, here's a list of things to do, a whole bunch of things to do, so that you can acquire the power of God by the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you already have the power of God by the Holy Spirit. Um, here, we don't say, here's a list of stuff to do so that uh, you can you know, obtain fill-in-the-blank. You have already love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, Self-control. It's now a matter of obedience. You already possess it. The fruit of the Spirit is manifested in the Christian's attitude, actions, worship, speech, and giving. That's the next blank on 42 there. Our attitude, our actions, our worship, our speech, and our giving. Now we'll end by uh, kicking around this thought here for a minute or two. If this is true, that the fruit of the Spirit is manifested this way, should we be fruit inspectors in the church, going around to each individual tree and seeing what kind of fruit everybody has, and determining whether or not someone is filled with the Spirit or even saved based on that? Okay, yeah, so even before you consider the idea, we are to make sure there's not a log sticking out of our eye, right? Okay, so that's a tall order. Um, what other thoughts do you have on this? That's also true. Um, we have this statement from Jesus, Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. That does not mean close your eyes and shut your ears and have no discernment. What that means though, as he goes on to explain in Matthew 7, is with the measure that you judge, it'll come back to you. So, if you want to go around and be a fruit inspector for everybody, you better be ready for the judgment of God to come at you just as strong, right? That gives us a, a firm press on the brake pedal when we think about inspecting other people's fruit. So, only God knows the heart, we know this, yet all we can see is the fruit. And the two are inextricably tied together, aren't they? It's not like, you'll have a heart of gold and live like hell, or vice versa. Okay? The two are tied together. So we must ask for wisdom often, and when we have to talk to somebody because of some fruit that we've seen in their life that's not good, then we just do it with humility and gentleness, truth and love. Okay, That's the goal. All right, well, I think we'll finish there. We are at one minute past time. I'll pray, and we'll move on to the next God, we thank you again for this day that you've made and all the opportunities that we have. Help us to serve you well and to grow in our faith together. In Jesus' name, amen.